0: You know, this week I was reminded of the story that, from the 1800s written by Charles Dickens in The Tale of Two Cities, in which he wrote these words. It was the best of times and the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. Now, he was speaking of the French Revolution, but also paralleling it with his day in the 1850s, and yet I think the same is true today, that we live in the best of times and the worst of times. We live in the best of times in the sense that, as Mark Knoll tells us in his book, That as of right now, the gospel is going forth in power all over the world. Right now, 46% of all believers in the world live in Latin America and Africa. In the year 1900, there were 10 million believers on the continent of Africa. 100 years later, in the year 2000, there were 360 million believers, taking up half the population of the continent of Africa. That As of today, there are more believers gathering for church in the nation of Kenya than there are in the entire nation of Canada. It's amazing how the gospel is going forth in power. There are currently 15,000 missionaries in Great Britain reaching people to gospel. And the majority of those 15,000 people are from Africa and Asia. The name of Jesus is going forth all over the world. These are good days. But the sense in which there's also, these are some of the worst of days. We see right now in a day and age where there is great Bible illiteracy. There are Christians who don't care at all about the glory of God. There's immorality in our culture that is celebrated. Our culture swims in the current of grotesque sexual sin and pornography, the absence of responsible fathers in the home, a drug culture that is destroying communities, and we can go on and on and on. But you see, we're not the first ones to experience this. The early church went through very similar challenges of it being the best of times and the worst of times, and both happening simultaneously. Well, in Acts 5, we learn how to leverage the gospel while living in the tension between the being the best of times and the worst of times. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We are walking through the book of Acts together as a faith family. If you're new to the Bible, you can go to the very beginning of your Bible. Just open the cover, go to the table of contents, and you'll see that it's broken up into two portions. You have the Old Testament And the New Testament, the Old Testament is the life in times of works of God before Jesus. The New Testament is the arrival of Jesus and what happened afterwards. The book of Acts is in the New Testament. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts, and then the book of Acts written by the apostle Luke. What we're seeing in the book of Acts is the power of the Holy Spirit moving in and through these apostles, These men who at one point were hiding behind locked doors and they are now open air preaching in public. These are a bunch of men who were scaredy cats and now they are F-14 Tomcats. These are a group of men who were fearful, and now they are fearless. They are boldly preaching the gospel, unashamed of Jesus, letting the world know who God is, what he's done in the gospel. We saw last week the the deadly danger of hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife who lied to the church about their giving record, and because they lied to the Holy Spirit, they dropped dead on the spot. Talk about accountability. It's a very tense moment where the fear of God grabs hold of the church and those in the area. And God yet continues to bless and prosper his people. Look with me in Acts chapter five, beginning with verse 12. The scripture says this. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns and surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail. So they returned and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, Look! The men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they were brought in, they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, "'Men of Israel, be careful about what you're out to do to these men.' Some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing." After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him, After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then Jesus, oh, easy there, Bruce. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, reading's hard, y'all, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, it's Acts 5. The early church is gaining momentum. More and more people are coming to faith in Christ. And as sweet as these early days of ministry are for the early church, difficult trials are at hand. I want you to notice in the text how the good and the hard happen simultaneously and how the mission of the church continues to move forward. The first thing I want you to see in the text is that they are in a season of prosperity that changes a community. The apostles were being used by God to perform the miraculous. In verse 12, it says, Many signs and wonders were being done, by, uh, done among the people through the hands of the apostles. Now, this is on the, he- on the heels of Ananias and Sapphira. The disciples continue to keep preaching the gospel. They're keeping the good news of Jesus front and center of the church. And not only, there, not only this, the church is continuing to gather inside the temple. They're on Solomon's porch or Solomon's colonnade. This is an area of the temple. It's on the eastern side facing the Mount of Olives in which there is a roof that protects the people from the weather. And this became the gathering place for the early church here. Thousands of believers would gather there for worship and for prayer and for hearing the word. Now, unbelievers dared not join them out of fear. They had heard what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They were also terrified of the Jewish religious leaders. And so they wanted no, no part of this. They didn't want to be a part of this gathering. And yet, verse 13, the people spoke well of them. Outsiders saw believers who were different. Their words, their attitudes, their actions, how the church cared for the poor, how the church was different in the way that they lived. The question that I've got for you this morning is this. Do people look at your life and speak well of the church? Do people see that you're different, that Jesus has genuinely changed your life? They see your care for the poor. They see that there's a godly character. You're different than you used to be. You don't talk the way that you used to. Your attitude is different. The actions, the life that you live, do you look different? Do people see your good deeds and give glory to your father who is in heaven? You see, a mark that you belong to Jesus is that you're different than the rest of the world. In fact, I've told you the story about how there were two guys at college at the University of Kentucky who were just different passionate followers of Jesus. They lived differently. They talked differently. Their attitudes were different than anybody had had seen in this particular dormitory. And there was one girl who was watching. She saw how these two guys were different. And because of their winsome witness of how they shared the gospel with her, invited her to these gatherings at FCA, she had this opportunity to hear the gospel. And she later came to faith in Christ. That girl was my wife. It's amazing when believers follow Jesus and their lives look different, people take notice. Unbelievers see what genuine faith in Christ looks like and it's attractive. And they begin speaking well of the church. That's what's happening here. You see, your life and your gospel witness is how people are won into the kingdom. And that's what's happening here. Look at verse 14. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers men and women, the text tells us, are coming to faith in Christ. The gospel is going forth and people are being converted. This is a time of prosperity where the gospel is being preached and the harvest is coming in. Oh, that God would do this again in our day. This is what I pray for. God, would you, before I take my last breath, God, I want to see you do a revival. I want to see a movement where no one can take credit but you. Thousands upon thousands of people whose lives are being changed by Jesus. All oh, that he would do it in our day, that you would join me, that in your prayer closet, you're praying, God, would you do in a, a work in our day that no one can get the credit but you. We're thousands of people whose hearts have been changed by Jesus. May that be our desire as a church is to see a movement take place where God transforms an entire community and culture with the gospel. That's what's happening here in the text. As these believers are authentically, passionately following Jesus, their lives are being changed and the gospel is going forth. We also see healing taking place here in the text. There's two different types. We see physical healing in verses 15 and 16, and we see spiritual healing there in verse 14. For the physical healing, we see The sick and the lame from all over the region, they're coming to Jerusalem. Word is spreading how God is at work in Jerusalem among these believers who are followers of Jesus. And may I say to you, God is still in the healing business. God is still able to heal. Physically, when you and I have ailments and sicknesses and diseases, God is still able to heal. He uses medicine and he uses the miraculous, and God loves to display his glory through the healing of people. And yet, physical healing is not the most important healing that you need. There's a greater healing that every human being must experience. You see, physical healing is temporary, spiritual healing is eternal. Physical healing is temporary. Spiritual healing is temporary. There's a sense in which this does not minimize our bodies. God's tenderness is so near to his people when they suffer. God cares when you hurt, when you have broken bones, when you go through sicknesses and diseases. The scripture is clear. God loves to show himself as our healer because he is able. And yet there is a greater healing that must take place in every person's life. Here in Acts 5, people are being physically healed of sicknesses and diseases, but more than that, people are being spiritually healed by believing the gospel. Question, have you been healed by Jesus? Have you experienced the healing that he provides through his cross? You see, all of us have a disease that is deadly, and it's called sin, Sin is where all of us have fallen short of God's perfect standard. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that at the cross, Jesus takes your sin. He takes your disease that is deadly and he takes it upon himself that indeed all of your sins are nailed to Christ, that God made him who knew no sin become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That the gospel is the good news of what Christ has done for you. That all the times that you've rejected him and shaken your fist in his face, that your words have not honored him, that you allowed your heart to chase after other idols. All of us are guilty. All of us have turned away. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that God still loves you. And God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came and gave his life for you. He took your sickness upon himself by being nailed to a tree, being nailed to a cross. And that is where he absorbs the full wrath of God towards your sin. All the love that God has for you. And you can become a child of God through Christ by turning from your sin and putting your faith and trust in him. If you've never believed the gospel, if you've never trusted in Jesus, I invite you today, turn from your sin and trust in him. Receive Christ. Put your faith and trust in him and he will receive you. That he bled and died on the cross for your sins and he was buried but He didn't stay dead. That on the third day, Jesus comes back from the grave. He defeats death and so too will you if you put your faith and trust in him. This is the gospel that we rally around and this is the gospel that the apostles are preaching here in the text and the gospel is everything and that Jesus will provide healing to any who trust in him. Physically, eventually we're going to die lest Jesus comes back. But spiritually, if you're healed, you will never die. Your body will decay, be planted in the ground, but your soul will live forever because Christ lives right here. You have Jesus. And he says, no one, John 10, no one can snatch you out of my hand. You are held with an omnipotent grip that Jesus' blood is sufficient to not only pay for your sin, but to secure your salvation. This is who we grab hold of, beloved. And this gospel changes everything. Because eventually you're going to take your last breath. And in that moment, the only thing that matters is, do you know Jesus? Have you been healed by the blood of Jesus Christ? I hope you've put your faith and trust in Christ. And y'all, we live in a community that is in desperate need of the gospel. We have a drug problem here in our community, and the only answer is Jesus. And we will know that arrival has arrived in our community when the police are bored. That's what I pray for. I pray that we get to a point where the police have nothing to do. Because Jesus has so consumed the hearts of people that there's reconciliation and broken relationships. There's eager desire for people to turn from sin and to run to Christ. That grace and joy abound, peace in marriages, laughter filling the homes of people because Jesus is everything. Oh, that that would take place. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter five. We see a season of prosperity that changes a community. But the second thing we see in the text is a season of persecution that challenges the church. The religious leaders are none too happy with what's happening with these Jesus followers. They're annoyed, they're frustrated that the message that they're preaching is that they're placing the responsibility of the death of the Messiah on them. They don't like the fact that the apostles are holding them accountable for the death of the Messiah. You see, the gospel is offensive to the prideful, and yet gracious to the humble. When people hear that it was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, that you are responsible for the death of Christ, the prideful get angry. That's what's happening here in the text. These prideful religious leaders who look good on the outside but inside are far from the Lord they're angry because they're being accused of the death of Christ. But you see, for the humble, we realize, yeah, that's right. I'm responsible and I'm accountable. And yet God has been gracious towards me. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. He says, for the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. You see, those who hear about the death of Jesus and that they are responsible, they get angry. Those who realize that they are responsible and they're humble, they get right. They get humble before the Lord. For these Jewish leaders, they're not only irritated, we see in the text, they're envious. The crowds are flocking to the apostles, Jealousy, the text tells us, is welling up in their hearts as thousands of people are flocking to these followers of the way. So they arrest the apostles, put them in jail, but do you think prison bars can stop the Lord? An angel comes, opens the door, and out the apostles go. We have a jailbreak. And then at daybreak, we see the apostles go into the temple and they preach about the life that's found in Jesus, panic ensues amongst the jewish leaders as the jail doors are locked and there's no apostles inside but word gets back to these men verse 25 that they're right there in the temple preaching they get arrested again but tactfully because the jewish leaders were afraid that the people might stone them and the apostles then stand before the sanhedrin And they get interrogated and you can hear the fear. You can hear the anger in the voices of the Sanhedrin. Verse 28, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in his name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Question, what do you do in that moment? You're on trial for your life. These 70 men have the authority to kill you. You're being persecuted for your faith in Christ. What do you do in that moment? Well, I want to draw out for you three things that you do in that moment from right here from the text. The first is this. Obey Jesus first. Obey Jesus first. Your allegiance is first and foremost to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right here in the text, verse 29, the apostles say, we obey God rather than people. Your first allegiance is not to your spouse. It's not to your family. It's not to your job. It's not to your country. It's not to your sports team. Your first allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. In your heart right now, settle that issue and say, honey, I love you, but Jesus is number one. You can make sure that you let your work know Jesus is number one. Let the world know Jesus has first place in your heart. If you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant on the last day, right now settle this issue. Jesus has first place. Make him number one in your heart. That's what these guys are doing. We're obeying God rather than people. Secondly, you continue to preach the gospel. You continue to preach Jesus. These apostles are on trial for their lives. So what do they do? They preach the gospel. They're doubling down on why they've been arrested in the first place. These apostles, they saw every moment, every opportunity as a way to point people to Jesus. When you are facing persecution for your faith in Christ, leverage those opportunities to say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm unashamed. I'm not backing down. I'm reading an autobiography right now that is so good. It's called Evidence Not Seen. And it's written by a woman named Darlene Rose, who was a missionary in Papua New Guinea during World War II. When war broke out, she was separated from her husband when the Japanese came and infiltrated the island. Her husband, Russell, was sent to an imprisonment camp for men, and Darlene was sent to an imprisonment camp for women. They would never see each other ever again. After being apart for 12 months, Darlene got word that her husband had died three months earlier. As a young 20-year-old, upon receiving the news, she's heartbroken and yet full of hope. She went to go see the Japanese commander of her prison, a man who had brought tremendous suffering and persecution, a man who did awful things to these women. She records in her book on page 111. Mr. Yamaji, may I have permission to talk to you? He nodded, sat down, then motioned for me to take the other chair. Mr. Yamaji, I don't sorrow like people who have no hope. I want to tell you about someone of whom you may never have heard. I learned of him when I was a little girl in Sunday school back in Boone, Iowa in America. His name is Jesus. He is the son of almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. He died for you, Mr. Yamaji, and he puts love in our hearts, even for those who are our enemies. That's why I don't hate you. Maybe God brought me to this place and this time to tell you he loves you. She went on to write, God opened the most wonderful opportunity to lay the plan of salvation before the Japanese camp commander. With tears running down his cheeks, He rose hastily and went into his bedroom, closing the door. I could hear him crying. I sat quietly praying for his salvation that he might understand new life in Christ Jesus and someday go home to share God's love with his family and his wife, to be a light in some dark and possibly even remote area of Japan. When you are under persecution, keep preaching Jesus in 1 Peter 3 the same Simon Peter from Acts 5 he says in 1 Peter 3:15 always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have god is going to put you in front of a lot of audiences throughout your life different venues different situations and circumstances when you're placed in those positions keep preaching jesus thirdly trust god with the results was the response of the sanhedrin revival was it cheering was it celebration was it gratitude no it was rage look at verse 33 when they heard this they were enraged and wanted to kill them so here's the question Could the apostles control the response of their audience? No. Who is the one who can change someone's heart? God. What are the apostles responsible for? The message. When the time comes for you to preach the gospel, you don't control the outcome. You can't change someone's heart. Only God can do that. God calls you and I to be faithful to the message, to faithfully tell people about Jesus, to point people to him. God is the one who changes the heart. God is the one who takes people from death to life. Our job is to be found faithful in preaching the message. So when persecution comes, we understand it from this perspective. Ultimately, persecution is not a rejection of us. It is a rejection of Jesus. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory, who the world hates. Paul said it like this in uh, 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 10.22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, the brighter your light for Jesus, the greater the intensity of the venom and the vitriol that is gonna come against you. You see, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. When you go through hardship in this life, you can rejoice Because Christ has overcome the world. And these light and momentary afflictions are not worth comparing to the glory that's about to be revealed to us. So you take heart. When you go through hardship, when people scoff at you for your faith in Jesus, when you are persecuted for your allegiance to Christ, when people rise up against you, you can rejoice you preach the gospel, and you trust God with the results. So in a season of prosperity, in a season of persecution, we must maintain number three, a singular focus of proclamation. The gospel must be preached. Through the persuasion of Gamaliel, the Sanhedrin decided not to kill the apostles, but did have them flogged. Now, flogging is what Jesus experienced the night of his betrayal. A flogging is when a person is tied to a tree or to a stump or a stone. Their hands are fastened. Their shirt is removed in which their back is exposed. A weapon called a cat of nine tails is used as a whip on that individual. It is a leather whip with these strands of leather that come off the end of it. At the end, you'll find pieces of bone, animal teeth, and sometimes glass. And according to Deuteronomy 25, that the Jews could not um, whip someone more than 40 times. So more than likely, the apostles each got 39 whips each through this flogging that's taking place here in Acts chapter 5. But did you see their response when they got the flogging? Look at verse 41. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name The Sanhedrin's whipping had the opposite effect. (laughs) Instead of demoralizing these guys, they're rejoicing. This is what Jesus commands us to do in Matthew 5. He says, "'You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you "'and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. "'Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven.'" Simon Peter would go on to say in 1 Peter 4, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. You see, persecution is not God's punishment. Rather, Jesus and Peter call it blessing. You see, when you're suffering for Christ's sake, you are identifying with Jesus and what he went through to accomplish your salvation. You are beginning to experience what Christ went through, through the mocking, through the rejection, through the scoffing, through the name-calling, through the false accusations, that the only innocent and perfect one who ever lived received complete injustice. That the one who was perfect in all of his ways is the one who receives all of mankind's imperfections placed upon him. And so when you experience something similar, it leads you to joy, And so what do the disciples do? They keep preaching the gospel. Look at verse 42. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. In large groups like this, hundreds, thousands of people at Solomon's Colonnade gathering to preach the word, to worship, to pray, to see God's face together. They'd gather in large groups like this. And they would also gather in small groups, we see here in the text. They would gather in people's homes. Both times, big groups, small groups, they're talking about the gospel. They're talking about all that Christ has done. You see, there is no off-season for the gospel. It's at work, it's in the lunch line, it's at the kitchen table, it's in the boardroom, it's on the ball field. The gospel is what we rally around and talk about continually. Paul said like this in 2 Timothy 4:2, preach the word be ready when in season and out of season when it's popular or when you face persecution when it's the best of times and when it's the worst of times we do the work of an evangelist so Kenneth what are you calling us to what's the impact point it's this whether in seasons of prosperity or seasons of persecution, just keep preaching the gospel. This is what you and I do until Jesus calls us home. We talk about him who has changed us, who has saved us, who has rescued us, who's adopted us, who's provided us an inheritance, who's given us a name, who's written your name in the Lamb's book of life. At the one who came and rescued you. The one who is worthy of all worship and glory and honor. The one who is seated on his throne, high and exalted. And soon you're going to see him face to face. And you're going to gather with all of the redeemed throughout the ages. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we're going to sing and declare worthy is the lamb who was slain for us. We're gonna glorify the one who came and gave his life for us. And we're gonna sing with gusto and passion. We're gonna dance and we're gonna celebrate all that he has accomplished for us through his death and through his resurrection. We have a gospel to preach. And God has strategically and intentionally placed you in your school, on your ball team, in your place of work, in your community to point people to his son. I'm not sure about you, but I want to hear well done, good, and faithful at the very end. And we can hear it if we just keep preaching Jesus. Let's point the world to him.